there was a boy by the name of Johnny. I told this story about five years ago at a Christmas Eve service. And Johnny was, uh, he was a terrible kid, um, not a very nice kid, and he wanted a bike for Christmas. And little Johnny went to his mom and he said, hey mom, can I, can I have a bike for Christmas? And she just looked at Johnny and she said, you know, Johnny, um, you've just not been a very good boy this year. And I don't know that you deserve a bike for Christmas. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to go up in your room and I want you to write Jesus a letter. And I want you to ask him for a bike. So little Johnny, a little ticked off, stormed up to his room and he sat down at his desk and he pulled out his pen and he paper and he said, dear Jesus, I just want you to know I've been a really good boy this year and I deserve a bike. Your friend, Johnny. And then he looked at the letter and he said, well, that's not true. So he crumbled it up and he threw away and he said, I'm going to write another story. And he said, hey, um, Jesus, this is Johnny. I've been okay this year. Um, tried my best. I just really want a bike. Yours truly, Johnny. He said, well, that wasn't true. So he threw it away. He wrote the third one. He said, dear Jesus, I've been a terrible kid, but I really want a bike. <laughs> Your friend, Johnny. And at this point, he was really upset. So he just crumbled the letter up and he ran downstairs and he ran outside and he was going down the street and the church was over to the right. And so he just decided he'd go into the church. He went into the church and he got up to the front and he knelt down and he went to pray and he didn't even know what to say, but he knelt down. And when he knelt down out of the corner of his eye, he saw the nativity scene and he got up and over there he saw the Virgin Mary standing above Jesus, and he took that Virgin Mary and he put it under his arm, and he ran out the church, and he went all the way home and ran up to his room, and he put Mary under the bed, and then he wrote Jesus a little note, and he said, Dear Jesus, I've got your mother. <laughs> and if you ever want to see her again, I want my bike. Signed, you know who. <laughs> I started thinking about that little story as uh, we come to Christmas. I mean, all of us, if we think about it, we have some kind of hope for Christmas. Some of us have a gift that we want. Some of our kids have already told you, they've already made their lifts. But let me ask you as adults tonight, most of you in this room, what are you hopeful for this Christmas? What is it that you would want to see or that you would want to experience or that you would want to receive? really as you prepare your hearts for this Christmas season. Are you hope-filled this year? Or are truly, if you're honest with yourself, uh, you feel maybe a little hopeless with everything that might be going on in our world or in our country or even in your own family? Let me ask you a question as we just talk a little bit about hope tonight. Where is your hope placed? You thought about that? Where is your hope placed? Or maybe this is a better question. Where has your hope been misplaced? Where has your hope been misplaced? All of us know we live in the world of the immediate. We live in the world of the instant. We live in a world where all of our needs can be met with one click of a button. Not only can we have what we need within days, now we can have what we need and it can be delivered to our front porch within hours. And the immediate and the instant is kind of what we expect with everything now. And I think it's what we expect in our faith. When we call on God to answer prayers, we expect it to be immediate. <laughs> when we call on God to do something, to heal, or to come into a situation or circumstance, we expect him to answer just like that. And when he doesn't, many times 
we just kind of lose hope. Well, in Isaiah chapter 9, the prophet begins to speak into a situation where the people of Judah have felt hopeless and they felt powerless. Their enemies only seemed to grow in power and in strength. and They needed something to happen immediately. Or really, they felt as if they could not survive. And to top it all off, they didn't even know if their God was for them or against them or if he had just simply abandoned them. But they knew at that moment they had lost hope. They were also a people who were choosing their own way over God's way. They were a people that were trusting in themselves and exalting themselves rather than trusting and exalting God. And this once proud nation had now plundered itself into darkness. But God didn't intend to leave them alone in their darkness. And as God has always done, and he continues to do today with his creation, he is looking for a way to get them out. He was looking for a way to give them a ray of hope in the midst of their darkness, a light that would shine kind of as a beacon, as a light, as they look to the future in this moment of hopelessness. And in the midst of their distress and fear, Isaiah comes along, this prophet, and he shares these words at the beginning of chapter 9, in the midst of their darkness, in the midst of their struggle, and he said, nevertheless, because you have all this struggle, verse 1, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations. By the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, the people walking in darkness, well, they have seen a great light. On those living in the land of a deep darkness, a light has dawned. And to the people of Judah at this time, this was just unexpected. Not only was the message of Isaiah unexpected, the future of where he said all of this would take place would be unexpected. You see, there in minds, uh, if God was going to do something great, <laughs> he wasn't going to do it in a place called Galilee. If God was going to do something great, he was going to come to the main city, to the capital, to Jerusalem, not in some podunk town called Galilee. That God would honor Galilee, a place with just a few Jews at the time, but it was full of Gentiles. Well, that was just unexpected. You see, as they looked to the future, they also were looking for a king to come in power and in strength. They were looking for a king who would come and be at the center of everything. They were looking for someone that would come and change their current circumstance. And they weren't looking for someone from Galilee, because that would be like our modern day Barstow. <laughs> the king doesn't come from Barstow. <laughs> you see, the king was supposed to come from Jerusalem. But now Isaiah, this king, this king is not coming from the right crowd. He's not coming from the right friends. He's not coming from the right place. He's not coming in strength, but he's actually going to come in weakness. He's not going to come in power, but he will come in humility. And he won't be a king that will come just to save the day. But you see, he's going to be a king that's going to come to save the world. But I really wonder how the people accepted the announcement in that moment. I'm not sure that it gave them great hope because they began to look around and, and said, well, what's this about Galilee? It doesn't change our current circumstances. What's this about a, a king coming someday? We're wanting someone right now. And our king will come in humility and not strength? <laughs> Just didn't make any sense and it was totally unexpected. Tucked away in the Centennial Mountains of Southwest Montana, 
It's going to be a picture of what's called Brower Springs. Brower Springs is the longest river in North America. And it is the fourth longest in the world at 3,902 miles. Named after Jacob Brower, who made the discovery in 1896, begins this water flow into various rivers and reservoirs that eventually makes its way into the mighty Mississippi River system. The Missouri River was one of the main routes for Western expansion during the 19th century and continues to impact millions of Americans living within its watershed. All of this started from a small spring that sits at 9,100 feet on the slopes of Mount Jefferson on the Continental Divide in southwest Montana. Think about it. Just like the springs that bring so much life to so much of America, the prophet comes with this unexpected news of the light that would not just change Israel, but would change the world. Verse 2, the people walking in darkness, well, they have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Isaiah combines two words, deep darkness, and really what that means is there was a death shadow. It was the idea of darkness and death coming together. And what he was saying was that there was a shadow of death that overcome their lives and their land. But in in that land, a light was about ready to dawn. New life was going to be available. God starts making something new. In the book of Genesis, as scripture begins, it says that there was light. God claimed, let there be light, and light came over the earth. Then after light, he said, let there be life. Light came before life, but light and life always go together. I don't know if you've ever thought about what would happen on this earth if the sun went out and was no more. Tim Keller, in one of his sermons, talked about this, and he said the whole world, if the sun went out, on the earth would be at zero degrees by the end of the day. It would be 100 degrees below zero by the end of the year all around the world. And then the earth would have stabilized at around 400 degrees below zero. Think about that. Photosynthesis would stop immediately. All the oxygen the plants have in the world and that they were putting out would be non-existent. We all would probably freeze to death before we could create structures and figure out this oxygen thing for mankind. See, a deep darkness would come over the earth. Light and life go hand in hand. And Isaiah comes and he says, hey, upon this deep darkness, a light is about ready to dawn. Well, what is that light? Well, he continues in verse six and he says this, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing, upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And it is the zeal of the Lord Almighty that will accomplish this. For unto us a child is born. Interesting. God uses a child for the oppression that is threatening them. God answers to the darkness in this world was a child. For unto us a child is born. 
Hope given to the hopeless was going to come in the form of a baby. See, he comes in humility. He comes in innocence. He comes as an unassuming child. And he came as a gift to you and me. See, I just don't think in that moment it was the gift they wanted or it was the gift they were looking for. Have you ever received a gift like that at Christmas? A gift you didn't want or a gift you weren't looking for? And when you got that gift, how did you respond? Tim Keller said, some gifts are given to you in life that in the moment they make you swallow your pride. Maybe someone will give you a gift for Christmas this year and you'll open it up and it's a diet book. (laughs) What do you do in that moment? Oh, thank you so much. I've been wanting a book on how I should lose some weight. Another might give you a gift entitled how to win friends and influence people. And then now you realize that you're both fat and obnoxious. What do you do with that? (laughs) Many of us would just have to swallow our pride and say thank you. (laughs) Have you ever gotten a financial gift when you were at the bottom of the barrel and barely making it? (laughs) Some of you might have been offered that gift and turned it down. Mostly men do that because our pride gets in the way. We don't want to let anybody know that we might need somebody's help. And God said the world was in deep darkness, and he said, I have a solution. It's just not what you expect. It's just probably in the moment not what you really want. But for unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. And he just didn't come to the earth. See, he was a gift given to us. And as that gift, it says the government will be on his shoulders, which means he will bear the responsibility of governing the people. Upon this child, the government, with all its responsibilities, lie. Like a burden, it will rest upon his shoulders, and that burden will be forever. And the ultimate fulfillment of this promise is still waiting. But you see, we can still see the government upon his shoulders working in many ways. I love what Gail Irwin writes about the government God promises both ultimately and right now. And it's a little bit long, but the quote's going to be on the screens. It says this, what might such a government like that look like? First of all, it would look like it's king. Politicians of this day look for what they can get from you. Jesus looks for what he can do for you. Leaders of this day surround themselves with servants. Jesus surrounds us with his servanthood. Leaders of this day use their power to build their empire. Jesus uses his power to wash our feet and make us clean and holy. Leaders of this day trade their influence for money. God so loved that he gave. Generals on this day need regular wars to keep their weapons and skills up to date and ensure their own advancement. Jesus brings peace and rest to hearts. You see, the higher the plane of importance one reaches in this world, the more inaccessible he becomes. Jesus was Emmanuel. He was God with us. And leaders of this day are desperate to be seen and heard. Jesus sought anonymity so he could be useful. Obviously, at this level, Jesus is not in charge of the halls of Washington or London or Moscow or Baghdad or France or Germany. So how can we ever believe the government will be on his shoulders? Actually, we need to understand his government. It's working in wonderful ways right as we speak. 
whenever I see the miraculous stories of someone that might leave the life of drugs or alcohol and is restored to his family and his work, I can see he is now governed by the one true God. Whenever I see loving Christians gently care for orphans and those rejected by family, I know I am watching people governed by the one true God. Whenever I see people eagerly learning the Bible and praising the Lord, I know who the governor of their life is. Whenever I see people give up lucrative careers and simply go and share the good news of Jesus, I know they are governed by the one true God. And when I see people leave family to live and teach in distant lands, because they love the people who have not heard the good news of Christ, I know they are governed by God. So indeed, the government is alive and working, many times silently and often unseen. We can be, by choice, governed by God. And when we are governed by God, I can tell you this from experience, it is hope and joy and peace and rest that covers you and the life that you live. And in this kingdom, the kingdom of God, the doors are open to all and anyone who would choose to receive this child called Jesus. And he just simply says, come. (laughs) My wife and I just got back from about a three-week trip and we went around the world. And we were in India for about 10 days. And if you go to this church, you know that you as a church have done unbelievable things in 42 schools with over 10,000 children that you have built those schools and God has done amazing things in and through you. And we were at a shelter for girls um, who were sold into temple prostitutions. Their grandma was prostitutes in the temple for the priest, their mothers. It was a family job that was passed down. It was passed down because they believed the sex gods would bless their families if they gave their kids to the priests as their sex slaves. You can't believe it until you see it. And we have a rescue shelter right now that has 150 girls in it that are rescued from these villages that their moms have sent them to us to care for them and to build a new life. And as I stood in that hall, there were 70 girls that night that told what they wanted to be and who they were and how thankful they were for God allowing them to be in the shelter. And they get up in perfect English and when they came to our schools, they didn't speak English and they just said, hello, ma'ams and sirs, my name is, and they would tell their name. And then they would say, I wanna be a police officer or I wanna be a doctor or I wanna be an engineer. And when you saw the life in their eyes, you knew that God was doing an incredible work. Two girls stuck out to me. The first one was a little girl that stood up and she just had a booming voice and she was in the back of the room. And she said, hello, madams and sirs, my name is, and she would tell her name. And then she said, I thought she said, I wanna be a teacher. And she said it with a giant smile and most of these girls don't smile and her picture's right there. And I thought I heard teacher, but there was part of me that said, I think she said she wants to be a preacher. So I went back over to her and I said, hey, did you say you want to be a teacher? And she said, no, I want to be a preacher. And I went, yes. (laughs) And I took her picture. I just took me out of it. And I said, I'm going to pray for you every day. God now has given you a voice. And a little girl who was going to be a sex slave, now because of the grace and the hope and the love of Jesus Christ and the power of who you are as a church, has changed her life. That, that is the kingdom of God 
coming to earth. That is God governing our lives. The second little girl got up to tell her testimony. And as she stood up to tell her testimony, she began to share how her life was changed. But she told us from the very beginning that she watched her dad burn her mother alive. And when she said that, the room just went silent. And this little girl just began to weep. And then she said, but because of you, madams and serfs, I have a chance to get an education and a job, and I have been loved and cared for, and I know this one called Jesus. And she just simply said, thank you. For me to watch this, I get to go and do and be and see things that you as a church have no idea the impact you make. But because you are being governed by the power of God, and you have listened and you obeyed, for unto us a child is born, that child, Jesus, is changing lives right here and halfway around the world. For you see, when I see those kids on top, on the last row, raising their hands and worshiping God, here's what I know. <laughs> They've not just heard about him. They are experiencing him. And they are seeing the love of Jesus through our teachers, through our administrators, through our choir directors, through everyone. And there's a chance that God might just use one of these kids to change the world. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And in Isaiah chapter 7, here's what he says. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. See, Emmanuel, we know this if you've been around church, is God with us. The God who became human means he is a God who understands. And he is a God who relates and knows what you are going through right now. Many people have asked me over the years, well, why hasn't God stopped the evil and suffering that is in this world? And I don't know fully that answer, but I do know this. It's not because he doesn't love us, and it is not because he doesn't understand what we are going through. See, God is love, and that is his character. And he came down to earth to experience the suffering that we have experienced, and many are experiencing today. He suffered infinite pain, and so through it all, we would know that we actually serve a God and have a God who can relate to our lives and our pain and our suffering in this world. Verse 7 goes on and says, Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. And he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. So let me ask you a question. Where is your hope placed? Or where has your hope been misplaced? I want to tell you just a few things as I wrap up tonight. First thing you need to know is this. Hope is for us. For unto us. It's you. That's me. Hope is for us. There was a child that was born and a gift of a son that was given. He was given to govern our lives. He was given to lead us and to guide us and direct us. 
He was given to save us from our sins so that we might know eternity, but it wasn't just a ticket to heaven. It was so that our lives might be different here on this earth and we might make a difference in our lives here on this earth. See, hope was given for us. Second thing is hope for our future. It's on his shoulders. Proverbs 11 verse 7 says this, Hope placed in mortals die with them. All the promises of their power comes to nothing. You might want to underline that. You might want to look in your Bibles and make sure you let that sink in. Here's what we need to know about Jesus. On Pentecost, after he rose from the dead, there were only about 120 followers that were still hanging out with him. Everybody else had left and abandoned him. His followers before the resurrection, see, they thought he was coming in power. They thought he was coming in glory. They thought he was coming to change their current circumstance. And when that all changed, and he actually went out as a weak man dying on a cross, they gave up on him, and they rejected him. But there was 120 that, that stayed. See, they wanted to, him to fix everything that was wrong with Israel immediately. And let's just be honest, we want the same thing right now too, don't we? Because when we look at our world, we think if only we could get rid of this person, <laughs> if only there was somebody else in office, if only this or that, our problems would all go away. And if only the Republicans would have won again, and if only those Democrats wouldn't have done this, and you can raise your hand and say yes, but you need to understand something. God places people empowers a position for a reason. Daniel talks about it. The problem is, many of us have placed our hope in the wrong thing or the wrong person. Now, does that mean we should not care? No, we should care. But some of us put way too much energy this way and not enough energy this way. For there was a savior that came that said, I'm going to govern everything and I am in complete control. And most of the time, we think our problem is out there and our problem is others. The problem most of the time though, is in here because it's an inside issue. See, most of the time, it's what's going on inside of our hearts that affect what's going on outside. And Jesus comes and he says, I've come to change your heart. I've come to change your life. I've come to change the way you see the world and the way you see me. And I am the one that is governing all things from the very beginning to the end. Because of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. So where is your hope placed today? This whole story right here with Isaiah, this prophecy, it was written some 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And then one lonely night in a stable in the town of Bethlehem, this light of hope was born and was given to anyone who would choose to believe. God showed up on earth and what he said was, I am for you. And he came to be with us. So hope is for us. Our future hope is on his shoulders. And hope is only found through our repentance. God with us is the God who is for us. So Jesus is maybe not what you expected, 
but it is actually just what you needed, a savior. In Romans 10, it says, here's what happens in repentance. That if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. You see, it wasn't just a gift for us, but it was a gift to us. And tonight, I just want you all to know that hope is Jesus. It's Jesus. And we all know this. Your ultimate hope's not going to be found in a gift or a toy, in a bike like little Johnny wanted or a balance beam. Your hope isn't found in your government or your political party. Your hope isn't found in your pastor or in your church. Your hope is not found in the immediate. It is only found in the ultimate. And his name is Jesus Christ. Hope is Jesus. And this Christmas, that hope is for you. So my prayer for you is out of Romans chapter 15, verse 13. And it simply says this, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. See, the only way you overflow with hope is that you were filled with hope by the God of heaven and earth through his son, Jesus Christ. My prayer is that this Christmas, Jesus will govern your life and that you will live for him because he is hope. Tonight, as we close, we want to close in a way just to celebrate. We want to close in a way um, to hopefully give you cheer and excitement and get you ready for this Christmas season. So before they come and sing one final song, I would love for you just to bow your heads with me if you would. God, thank you. Thank you for your grace and your goodness and your love. Thank you that you came, that we might be saved. Not just for eternity, but God, that our lives would be different here, that we would represent you and the hope that fills us from you would go out and fill this world. So God, thank you for this Christmas season. Thank you for the opportunities that are before us. Thank you for the way you have used this church to change the life of so many around the corner, around the world. And tonight, God, I pray for every person that is here I pray that they walk out of here knowing that hope is only really truly found in you. That you are the ultimate, that you are the savior, that you do come and bring us peace in our immediate circumstance, but ultimately God, you give us peace for each and every day of our life. So today may someone in this room just confess that Jesus Christ, that you are Lord, and may they allow you to begin to govern their lives. God, we say, thank you. May tonight we go with a blessing of hope and peace and love. And may your Holy Spirit lead and guide us as we live our lives each and every day for you. We thank you for tonight. And we give all honor to the name of Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.